Well, our sermon scripture passage for this evening is Exodus chapters 19 and 20. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Exodus chapter 19 as we read this and then we'll study it together. Exodus chapters 19 and 20. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. 
So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, God, we do come to your word in recognition that we need you to speak to us. And so please open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Please give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you speaking, and hearts that long to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this fall, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus during our evening series. Um, our evening services, we have the series, A Rescued People. And if you've been coming over the course of this fall, you know that we've been following the people of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt, but rescued out of slavery by the might and the power of God. 
God had brought plagues on the Egyptians and led the people out of Egypt and toward the Red Sea. And when the people were cornered at the edge of the Red Sea, the Egyptian army was closing in and God parted the waters. The Israelites passed through on dry land, but the Egyptians were drowned. God had rescued his people through his miraculous power out of slavery in Egypt. And over the past three chapters in the book of Exodus before our text for this evening, the people have been traveling through the wilderness. They've been coming from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, and God had provided again and again water from the rock, manna from heaven, victory in battle, wisdom in leadership. God was testing his people, but teaching them to root their trust in him deeper and deeper and deeper. And then the people arrived at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And here is our text for this evening, where God comes and God speaks. In chapter 19, God comes in cosmic power, revealing his might and his holiness. And in chapter 20, God speaks, giving people the law in the Ten Commandments. And I'm guessing that many of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments, at least at some level. Um, Maybe you've known them by heart, or at least you know a few of them. Maybe they've been put to you as the standard for a good moral life. If you want to live an upstanding life, here's the way to do it. Or perhaps you've heard them and considered them um, to be some sort of random, arbitrary set of rules that God throws out to his people and puts on us. Or maybe you've even thought that in these commandments, God is cunningly keeping us from some sort of happiness. Or maybe you've tried to live them out with all that you have, but you can't help but come back to the fact that you just don't measure up. And that maybe your heart is filled with fear that God may one day reject you because of your flaws and your failures. As we look at the fullness of this story, both of these chapters where God gives the law, these Ten Commandments, chapters 19 and 20 in their fullness, we'll see that God's not just laying out some sort of arbitrary set of rules. He's not just laying out some plain, simple standard of moral living and that's it. He's not crafting a scheme to steal our joy and keep us from what will make us happy. Rather, In Exodus 19 and 20, God comes and God speaks and he calls his people to a life that responds to the rescue they've already experienced. This text shows us, even us today, it urges us to live in response to God's loving rescue. God comes and God speaks and he calls us to live in response to his loving rescue. And so first, God comes. And this theme runs through all of chapter 19. If you look at it with me, God comes and meets with the people on Mount Sinai. And God makes some amazing promises. The people prepare themselves to hear from God, but a clear separation is made between God and the people. When God comes, he begins by making a promise. And verses four to six are some of the the key verses in this whole passage. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. God recalls his loving rescue. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, how I brought you to myself, God says. He had struck down the Egyptians who enslaved them. He'd brought people through the Red Sea. And just like a mother eagle pushes her young out of a nest so they can learn how to fly, she swoops down underneath them in case anything goes wrong and she can bear them back up to the nest. It was the same with God and his children. He provided for them in the wilderness and he rescued his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and to himself. And it's out of this rescue that he requires a response. We see this in verse 5. You see, now therefore, the response comes in light of the rescue. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... The response God calls his people to is obedience. Obedience to his commands, obedience to his law, to follow him, to trust him with their whole lives. They're to respond. So there's rescue, then response, then reward. So it's out of rescue that God requires a response, but then after the response, God promises a reward. And verses 5 to 6 lay out three of these specific parts of the reward that God promises. He says that you will be my treasured possession. The whole earth is God's. He made it all. He rules it all. He's over it all. But he chose Israel to be his people. Out of all the peoples of the earth, he set his eyes on them because he loved them and he treasures them be his treasured possession, but also they will be a kingdom of priests. It's not that everyone in Israel would be a priest offering sacrifices on the altar and partaking in those specific priestly duties, but rather that they would all be his ambassadors. They, they would, all the nations of the world would know the name of the Lord through these people. And just like a priest mediates the presence of God to his people, but they're also kingly priests. They're people who are supposed to rule and be ambassadors for God. To bring the blessing of God to all nations. A treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and also a holy nation. A people that is clearly set apart, living for God created, the people that God created to live for him, living rightly as he did create them to, honoring God in all they do. These are amazing promises that God lays out for his people, and he calls them to live in response to his loving rescue, because that's how they will actually be the treasure possession, the kingdom of priests, the holy nation they were called to be, by obedience to his commands They will be everything he made them to be. And this is always the pattern of God's work. Rescue, response, reward. It was for Israel and it's the same for us today as well. And sometimes I think we we may want to get this pattern rearranged. Well, God, maybe if you rescue me and then reward me, I'll respond. But no, the pattern of God's redemptive work is always this way. Rescue, response, reward. 
We need to get this right. Because God does indeed call you to holiness. So live in holiness. But he doesn't call you to holiness out of nothing. It's not an arbitrary call. He doesn't call you to holiness because he wants to rob you of joy. He doesn't call you to holiness just because. He calls you to holiness because he has rescued you. He calls you to holiness so that you can be everything he created you to be, his treasured possession, a priestly king, a holy nation. It's like a coach who carefully chooses the players to be in his starting lineup out of all the players on his team, selecting the players he desires. And all week he takes that group of players and he puts them through drills that are difficult and strenuous and it requires a lot out of each player. But he doesn't do this randomly. It's not arbitrary. It doesn't, it's not just done to make the players do something. A good coach chooses drills. A good coach chooses plays that will make his team to be everything they can be. It's the same with God. He doesn't call you to random obedience. Remember the pattern of God's redemptive work. It's rescue, response, reward. May we trust fully in God's rescue live passionately for him in response and look to our true reward and trust God through and through. So there's promise. There's also preparation. The people must prepare for God's coming and the people are told to ready themselves for God to come to the mountain. We see this in verses 9 to 15, but let's focus in on verses 10 to 12. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. It's intense. And there's a need to prepare for God to come. And there are two distinct ways that the people are supposed to do this. They're cleaning their clothes and staying separate. People's clothes are often used throughout the Bible to symbolize and represent their inner heart or their desire. It's the external representing the internal especially on a day today like Halloween when we see kids dressed in Halloween costumes, their external apparel reveals their inner desire to get as much candy as they can possibly get. (laughs) When you see those trick-or-treaters, you know what they're about. (laughs) In the same way, God calls these people to say, clean your clothes in order to represent the internal change that's happening. Represent the external with internal Clean clothes, an outward representation of an inward direction of the heart. The people were to present themselves as pure and ready, prepared to meet with a holy God. The other aspect of the preparation was to be setting these limits, to stay separate from God. There were limits set on the mountain so the people could not approach the place where God was going to be. And if anyone were to even touch the very edge of the mountain, they would be put to death. This was serious business. An unholy people, a holy God. Even though the people had washed their garments, there was no way that an unholy people could.
could approach a holy God. So there's a promise, there's preparation, and there's separation. And we see this even further in verses 16 to 25. The divide, the separation between an unholy people and a holy God is revealed even further in the way that God comes in his cosmic power. Verses 16 to 20 get the sense of it. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought all the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder and the Lord came down. God comes in cosmic power. Roaring thunder, bolts of lightning, thick, dark clouds and an ear-splitting trumpet. And the mountain itself trembled at its core. All of God's holy power and might were revealed in a moment. The holiness of God, the power of God, represented in this cosmic display. If you've ever been camping in a tent in the middle of a lightning storm, I think you probably get a little bit of the sense of what this must have been like. When the lightning lights up the night sky as clear as day, when the rain beats down on your head, and when you feel the, clump, the, the thunderclaps kind of rattling your bones, and all you can think to do is pray to God, and you literally feel how small you are and how powerful the one who created this all must be. You get a sense of the gap between the people and God. It's the power of God on display. And there's a clear separation between the people and God. They cannot come near. Limits have been set up. God's cosmic power is on display. An unholy people, a holy God. You can't casually run into the presence of a holy God. The writer of the book of Hebrews reflects on this passage in chapter 12. Verses 25 to 27 have a warning for us. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. God will once again, just like he did at Mount Sinai, shake the heavens, and the earth. What a reminder for us all. Do not refuse him. We ought to have a holy fear of this God. He's the one who can and who once again will shake the earth. And put your trust in Jesus Christ. Perhaps even tonight, he's the one who can save you from death. Because when God comes, He makes some amazing promises and he calls his people to preparation as they hear from him. But what becomes obvious is that there is a separation between an unclean people and a holy God. And this is the tension of this passage. 
If God makes these amazing promises, how do we deal with this separation that's still here? How are the people of God supposed to meet with God? How are they actually supposed to be his treasured possession? How are they supposed to be his people if they can't even come near to him? And this is the tension in which God comes in chapter 19. And it's also the tension that we have in chapter 20 when God speaks. And in chapter 20, as God speaks, we see God, law, and response. So first, God. And verse 2 is such an important verse in this chapter. It's much like the opening verses of chapter 19 where we saw God's promises. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The God who gives the law is a God who brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's a God who loves them. He cares for them. He has chosen them. He's rescued them. And now he calls them to respond. Again, we see this pattern of God's redemptive work. Rescue, response, reward. Even as he gives his law, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, And so as we come now to the law in verses 3 to 17, these are the Ten Commandments. And while we won't cover all the Ten Commandments in detail, there are two major spheres that we see within these Ten Commandments that God gives as a response to his rescue. And these two spheres are vertical and horizontal. There are vertical commandments that have to do with us loving God and there are horizontal commandments that have to do with loving others. The vertical commandments are numbers 1 through 4 and the horizontal ones are 6 through 10. We get these vertical commandments that have to do with loving God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God demands out of his people that they worship him alone. You shall have no other gods before me, he says. You shall not make for yourself an image of which I do not have one like me. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath that I have created. God demands soul worship in order to be his people, in order to be his ambassadors. He he requires that his people have no other God in the picture, that they treasure no other God but him. There's vertical commandments that he asks and requires of his people. There's also these horizontal commandments. And these are ones that are about loving others in the world. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. The same God that demands a soul love for him and no other gods demands a love for other people. In order to be his representatives, in order to be this kingdom of priests, God's people need to be able to bless the whole world. And in that mission, there can be no room for infidelity or hatred or selfishness. Vertical and horizontal, loving God, loving others. In fact, this is how Jesus himself spoke of the law. He was questioned in Matthew 22, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And his response was this. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. And throughout the New Testament and even in Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, we're reminded that yes, these laws are about the external actions that are spoken of. It is about that, but it's about something far deeper as well. It's about the heart. And so, People have differing views on how these commandments are relevant today, whether we should follow them explicitly to the letter of the the law or not. But what we all must recognize is that to love God and love our neighbor is demanded in the Ten Commandments, and that is surely for today. In fact, that's the very essence of these laws. If you remember the beginning of chapter 19, the beginning of chapter 20, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession. You shall be a kingdom of priests. You shall be a holy nation. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. God rescues his people and therefore called them to respond, to be his people, to be his representatives in the world. He doesn't just want some of who they are. He wants all of who they are. It's like a parent who loves their child and raises them to know and love the ways that are right and good. Out of a parent's love for their child, their discipline in teaching their child the way they should go flows out of that. And so it's the same way in these commandments. God is teaching his people how to be the treasured possession, how to be the kingdom of priests, how to be the holy nation that he's called them to be to fulfill the image of God he created them as. It's not obedience for obedience's sake, but it's to be truly everything that they were made to be. His people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God made you for holiness, so live in holiness. God made you for righteousness, so pursue righteous living. Learn what it means to be sons and daughters of God. Root out the sin in your life. Constantly examine yourself and plead with the Lord to help you live as he desires. We need to be a people who not only know about God's law, but who seek to live it out with all of our heart and all of our soul and with all of our mind and all of our strength. It's not mere rule following. True holiness is being everything that you were made to be. God designed you for it. In fact, true holiness is true humanness. It's everything he made you for. But at the same time, we consider this call to holiness. We again feel this tension of the text. How can this unholy people approach a holy God? Because not only does this law teach us how to be the people God created us to be, it also teaches us that we don't measure up. Not a single one of us can, at least if we're honest with ourselves. Not a single one of us can look at God's law and say, yep, done it, kept it, check. None of us measure up to God's standard. None of us is holy Not one of us has kept God's law. And as the prophet Isaiah said, there is no one righteous. No, not one. This is the tension of this text. How can an unholy people, even like us, be with a holy God? 
what do we do? Well, our text not only shows us God and law, but also a response. In verse 19, the people say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. The people realize they could not come close to a holy God or they would be killed. And it's the same for you and me. Just like the people of Israel, we also need a mediator, someone to stand in the gap for us. And here's the good news. In Jesus Christ, God has come and God has spoken. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has come. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Jesus Christ, God has also spoken. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, God did not come in unapproachable thunder and in fear and trembling. But he came near, and he touched the unclean, and he healed the sick, and he left the 99 to go after the one. As Paul writes in Romans 8, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, Jesus on the cross, when he rose again on the third day, he broke the power of sin. His perfect life was lived for us, the one we could never live. His, through Jesus Christ, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us who believe in him. His righteousness given to us. And through Jesus Christ, we've been set free from bondage to sin and given the power of God's spirit to live for him. And so as the apostle Peter reflects on these verses from Exodus, he reflects on them in 1 Peter chapter 2. But he says some familiar language, but now he's speaking to the church, to all who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And this is what he says, but you, the church of Jesus Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What good news is this? that it is through the work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection life, it is through Jesus Christ that you and I can be the chosen people of God, the royal priesthood, the holy nation that we were called to be. It's through him. It's because of Jesus Christ that you and I can be everything we were made to be. It's his strength that enables us It's his strength that empowers us. It is Jesus Christ who gives us the strength to be the people of God. His strength enables us to live in holiness, to calm our fears, to secure our future. You see, the good news of the gospel is that we can, 
through Jesus Christ, live in response to God's loving rescue. So put your hope in Jesus and live for him and serve him and love him. Would you give your life to him? Let's pray together. God, we do come before you humbled in recognition that we do not deserve on our own merit to be in relationship with you, a holy God, but we come to you confessing the name of Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, the one who stands in the gap for us. Thank you for Jesus and that his strength and his power and his perfect life enable us to be the people that you've called us to be. I pray that, therefore, you would help us to live in light of that, to be people who pursue holiness, who recognize that you've rescued us to respond, and who love to live for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.